This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Harmel Academy of the Trades, a community of work, prayer, and study where men seek holiness through high-demand, skilled trades. It's a great way for young men to get started in life by finding God in their daily work. For more information, go to harmelacademy.org. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Pod. You know, you know who we are, and you know what this is. This is not your first rodeo, and uh, it is time for us to get... I mean, Ed, these guys... I'm always just giving. I'm spoon feeding it. Really, is what I'm doing. And they they know. I mean, they know what what's going on. You 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 know the score. I presume if if this is your first time, I guess you're wondering why I'm being a little antagonistic to you. But other than that, you know the score here. Um, that's true. But it's, it's you have to do the intro, JD. You have to do it, and you have to do it right, and you have to do it the way you always do it. That's people want that. Do they? They do. I want that. I mean, not on this show. I never listen to this show, but <laughs> on the podcasts to which I do listen. <laughs> There's always, the, you know, the the person who leads the show always does the same introduction. I find it comforting. I find myself mouthing along oh, to it. Oh, it's like a little it's, sort of, it's a little sort of ritual, a little a little liturgy with which to begin, if you will. It a, is. It's, yeah. you know, you d- people come to us, JD, and give us an hour of their time a week. That's true. And they expect inane prattle, the occasional meltdown by one or both of us, and sometimes a sort of light gloss on the news, but mostly they're coming for your intro. They want the safety of the routine, JD. Please let me say this, and I hope you'll take it. It won't seem weird to you when I say this, but can I just say, I am really, I have been edified of late by your your humility in your approach to our work. I uh, I, I just want to affirm you in that. Right now, you're you're being listener-centric in a way that, to my mind, reflects a certain kind of humility. And, you know, yesterday you called and really asked me, and you, I could tell you were really, you spent a lot of yesterday agonizing over a couple of ideas that you had and, and, and trying to decide which one would best serve our readers. And then I was reading your newsletter today, we're recording this on Friday, the Feast of St. Jerome, and I was reading your newsletter today, and um, and you took an, an approach of humility with regard to the political situation of Italy's prime minister, which is probably appropriate since we don't know about that kind of stuff. But I mean, I just want to affirm this tendency that I am noticing you in you in a, in a greater development of a kind of reader, listener, servant mentality. Is this something you've been, have you been working on this, Ed? Uh, there's you a door have. number one and a door number two you answer here. I, no, I mean, not, I mean, look, some of it is mercenary. I, <laughs> I, I have a, I have an infant daughter who turns one at some point in the next few days or weeks and I would like to be able to afford her to send her to school one day. I would like to one day own a house for her to live in. And all of that depends on people who do things like listen to our podcast and, and read subscribe. our newsletters. To subscribe, to be so enthused by what they hear, to be so reassured by um, you know, the 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 reliability of the intro, for example. That they <laughs> they feel the urge, they feel the good old fashioned Catholic guilt to to support it financially. So there's that. Although I do, I tend to spend time, I try to spend some time during the week um, reading ahead and, you know, just trying to reflect over the course of the week on the coming Sunday's gospel. Um, so that, you know, when it arrives, I, you know, I'm, I'm not coming to it cold that I, that I arrive uh, at, at mass uh, and hearing the gospel proclaimed with, you know, having given it some thought, having, having lived in it for a week to the extent that I can. And of course, this coming Sunday, um, the gospel is all about, you know, we are only unworthy servants that we should expect no more than to be 
grateful for the work that we are given. So I, I have been trying to think a little bit. I, I just want to commend you because I really see in you a greater development in the virtue of humility. And I'm trying to develop. I I I I, I feel like you're subtly calling me a pompous ass. No, I'm not. Uh, I mean, on the saying, contrary, I'm, I'm finally becoming bearable. I. <laughs> fair point. Uh, okay, well. Maybe I'll retract all of this then. I just am trying to, uh, I'm trying better to uh, to see uh, God's grace operative in the lives of other people and to see the, the transformative ah. power of grace operative in the lives of other people, f- in part because I think it's part of the prophetic mission of our baptism to affirm that, but also in part because I think seeing the operative power of grace working in other people's lives is a good sort of, con- remi- you know, a consoling reminder, a, a sort of consolation in the formal sense of a witness to the presence of God and the power of God. So I've just been trying to see that more and to affirm it. Uh, and uh, and so, no, I'm not trying to say, hey, you're slightly less of a pompous ass of late. But I am saying I really do see in you uh, a, a real thoughtful consideration of the needs of the reader and the listener lately. And I just would like to uh, to praise God for that. And it's not, it's not about you, and I'm not trying to praise you about it. Just, you know, thanks be to God. Well, thank you. That's, that's it's kind of you. <laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed. His papal name is Humilitas I, Condon, the servant of the servants, well, the servant of the readers of the Pillar and, and you listeners, if nothing else. Ed, how do, how are you doing this week, my friend? Uh, truth to tell, I'm exhausted. You are. You stayed <laughs> up. I'm really I got, tired. You, I, I looked at my email this morning when I got up, and I got up about, I, I don't know, 5.30 or something this morning as I typically sort of wake up around that time, and I looked at my email, and I saw that you had uh, shared a draft of your Friday newsletter with me at... When what what time was it that it was kind of early for me? What time? I, did you I sent it at four thirty in the morning my time. You sent it at four thirty in the morning your time. So you were up all night doing your newsletter. I I was I I had some, you know like you said earlier I had some ideas and I was trying and I by the time I'd settled on one of them I you know it involved having to rewrite some things and and then it was just way too long. The newsletters have gotten out of hand for me lately. They keep getting longer and longer, and I'm really self-conscious about that, and I don't like it, and so I ended up cutting a bunch of stuff. Um, yeah, it's hard to know what the right length of the newsletter... I mean, people read them. We can see the statistics, and we can see that people read them, and we're edified by that, and we can usually tell that people are clicking on the links and things like that, but it is it can, it can is a little tricky to know what what the uh, what the um, sweet spot is. Yeah. It, it it was hard. Um, so yeah, I was I was up and I was agonizing over it till four thirty in the morning. And then obviously, um, the, the my daughter is no respecter of persons, and I, I tried explaining to her that I had been working late and she didn't care. So she still got up at the same time. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's I'm a, I'm a little strung out right now, but that's fine. That's fine. It's it's <laughs> it's great. I'm I'm gonna meet. Um, going to meet someone after this show, a friend of ours, uh, whom I haven't seen in a while. I'm going to have an interesting conversation with him. I perhaps might have a beer or two, and then I will probably fall asleep in my car. Oh, well, that's, um, maybe That's maybe my take plan the, for this afternoon. Maybe take the Metro, buddy. It seems safer to me if you would take the Metro. I'd be pleased. Oh, no. No, oh, it's not safer to take public transport. Well, it's... it is safe. Yes, it is safer to take the Metro than it is to fall asleep in your car. If you don't oh, know yeah. that. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. I, well, I wasn't planning on driving it while I fell asleep in it. I'm Reckless. Oh, in other words, you're gonna you're gonna meet our friend for a drink, then you're gonna get into your parked car and just take a nap. 
Yeah, I, I, I think that might work. <laughs> maybe you Uber. No one can. You know, get maybe me we'll there. get. I mean, that's kind of expensive, but maybe, maybe we'll get some more subscribers through the show, and then you could Uber. That would be nice. I'd love to be able to afford Uber. <laughs> Keep so. Ed safe is my point. Keep Ed safe. <laughs> yes, if you'd like to prevent me. <laughs> right. Okay. Enough. Enough. Okay. Of this nonsense. Enough of this nonsense altogether, because there's a lot happening in the news this week, and I want to talk about it, but I want to kind of use it as a segue to talk about some other stuff um, that's happened that 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 pertains to being Catholic. I don't want to have any grammar conversations this week because. I've gotten a lot of uh, I've gotten a lot of cre- <laughs> creative pushback to my perspectives on grammar. I I probably should concede uh, some points to you about uh, that's all right. Uh, no, I, prob- need to revisit I probably should concede one one out of two points to you. I'll never concede the second, but I probably should concede to you that although it seems to me that combustuous should take an object that one might say someone has a combustuous temper or whatever, uh, I concede that the overwhelming um, uh, preponderance of opinion among listeners to the show is that I am wrong. Well, there are two sets of opinions. One, that I'm wrong. Two, the people who leave reviews that say, why do you guys talk about this crap? I don't care about it. So yeah, we don't, we don't need to revisit it. It's yeah. Fine. Okay. Good. It's okay. Fine. So having conceded to you, um, there's a lot happening in the news um, this week in the life of the church. The Vatican trial has resumed. Um, Cardinal Zen's trial is ongoing. The German bishops are getting ready for their, had their sort of plenary session of the German bishops conference this week and are getting ready for the, um, their ad limina visit to Rome, their visit to the dicasteries of the Roman Curia, and their visit to the Roman Pontiff, and that should be super interesting. But um, the sort of major thing that happened in Catholic news this week, the thing which kind of had had me sort of sitting back to reel for a moment, if you will, is um, a report from a Dutch news magazine um, that effectively chronicled allegations, and I want to say allegations a couple of times, allegations of um, serial sexual abuse on the part of uh, a Bishop uh, from East Timor, the East Timorese Bishop, uh, the Timorese Bishop, I suppose you say, um, Bishop Carlos Bello, who is kind of an interesting figure. Before we get to the allegations, just his sort of uh, his sort of context for him. Um, Bishop Bello is a Salesian priest, T- Timorese, a, a, a native of East Timor, and, and you know East Timor was um, was uh, was at one point a colony of, of Portugal, and um, by virtue of that fact was. Uh, well evangelized and well catechized such that it became a, a very heavily Catholic country. Um, but Portugal, it was, it was Portuguese, I think until the 1970s. Um, yeah. Well, I think what happened was, was a, Portugal had a network of very small right. um, colonies. I mean, there's no other word for it. No, I think uh, colonies is the right word. Yeah. yeah. And um, basically when the, when the Portuguese government, which I think you could say was fairly, I mean, they wore uniforms. Let's say I, I don't want to come right out and call them a military junta, but I mean they, you know, they wore uniforms. Right. Um, anyway, when that government fell, I think in '75, basically uh, all of their colonies. Man, I did all this background research, and you just you 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 just got it, huh? Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is history. It's just I, I understand. Events. I'm just saying. I was about to. Anyway, so all the all the colonies were cut loose, and and they all got effectively snapped up by their neighbors, like almost immediately. Right. I mean, it was you know this happened in East Timor with the Indonesian invasion. It happened in Goa. The mm-hmm. um, the government of India just sort of rolled in there. Um, you know, it's, Be- it's what happens. Because when the Portuguese effectively shut down their program of colonization at the time of the coup, the 1974 coup, um, they were no effectively <laughs> withdrew their presence from East Timor and the Indonesians swept, swept in. East Timor is the eastern half of an island. I suppose the island of Timor. 
um, the western half of which was already Indonesian, and uh, the Indonesian military swept in. And so Indonesia went from being, or East Timor went from being a colony of the Portuguese to becoming uh, effectively under occupation um, by uh, by the Indonesians. And in the context of that, Bishop Bello, who was a Sil- East Timorese, um, Timorese a, a, pre- a priest of the Salesian order, Salesian of Don Bosco, um, became effectively a, a world figure uh, in advocacy for Timorese independence. Yes. Uh, he was appointed in the, I want to say, mid I think he became a bishop in 88. I think he became a bishop in something like 88. I think that's right. Um, and he, I mean, and he, he was, was nev- very young. He was very young. And I mean, yeah, he became a sort of figure of not just the independence movement, but also, uh, you know, the sort of championing of human rights in the face of the Indonesian, you know, what plenty of people are happy to call genocide in, in East Timor. I mean, hundreds of thousands of civilians were just killed by the Indonesian military. I mean, it's not, you know, this is a, this was a particularly dark chapter in world affairs in the eighties and nineties. It was you know horrific. And, he would, you know, um, Bishop Bella would, you know, have uh, from time to time letters smuggled out. Um, John Paul II came to East Timor to visit. You know, he was he became the sort of focal point of raising awareness of what was going on there, trying to keep the plight of these people in the global spotlight. And of course, famously, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for all yeah. of this in '96, I think it was. Yeah, he shared it with um, with another sort of Timorese pol- political advocate who eventually became the president of the country. But, but I mean, Timorese there was you say who eventually became the president of the country, but when the two of them shared this prize in '96, like they they were considered equally suitable and equally viable as future presidents of the country in the event of independence. Like there was a legitimate move that they wanted Bishop Bellow to be the, yeah, that's right. the country's first president. That's right. Even after he resigned from the, eventually resigned from the Episcopate. So, so, um, so uh, uh, he wins the Nobel Peace Prize. East Timor becomes an independent country. It's the first country of the new millennium in 2002. It becomes a country. Um, and, I remember uh, that. Do you? I do. I, I, I very much do. Yes. Um, and, uh, and so Bishop, Bello with a Nobel Peace Prize in hand, uh, leading the, the effectively the capital C of the diocese uh, of the country, only fifty four years old, a global audience and a global stage, sort of very suddenly and unexpectedly resigns from office. You wouldn't expect it because all the, you know this guy is sort of at the prime of all the things he's been working towards, and he's only fifty four, and then he resigns from office unexpectedly and goes to Portugal. He does. He goes to Portugal ostensibly for health reasons. Right. Although there's some vagary about that even at the time, right? But he goes yes. to Portugal for, for ostensibly health reasons. He gets he undergoes what is referred to as medical treatment for about a year. And then uh, um, eventually in 2004, he gets the Holy See to agree that he can become a parochial vicar at a parish in Mozambique. Um, and in 2005, he gives an interview to UCA, which is a, um, an Asian Catholic news agency. He gives an interview to UCA in which he says that uh, he, it, the, the, the language is very strange. He says that he's been a parochial vicar, that he's doing a lot of catechetical work with young adults and doing catechesis with children and these kinds of things. And, of course, no one has any – no one – not very many people have any suspicion of that being anything unusual. But he, that's what he says he's, he's doing. But then he says something about, like, I was at the top and now I'm at the bottom, you know, which is yes, a kind of very strange way to talk about ministry, right? come down to – I mean, the, the thrust of what he was saying was he had – he, he had taken Mohammed the had come place. from the mountain, right? Exactly. He had taken yeah, the lowest place. Key to taking the lowest place. Whole point. 
otherwise, if you don't recognize this fact, you're just in the lowest place for no reason at all. Key to taking the lowest place, don't make a thing of it, right? Don't make so a thing of it. But right. he's, so he's, he was always weird. prone to um, noticing his own status. I mean, even in the sort of famous letter that he smuggled out of East Timor via another priest and, you know, had it delivered to, I think, uh, at first it went to Portugal, to the, to the Salesians in Portugal and the bishops there, and then it went to the president of Portugal, the UN general secretary, the Pope. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of, you know, his first big push uh, to to get the world to pay attention and intervene in the Indonesian um, atrocities being committed in East Timor. But even there, he he spoke of him, he compared himself to Oscar Romero. Oscar Romero, right, exactly. He said, you know, I, I could go the way of, uh, of you know, the Holy Bishop Oscar any, any, t- any day now, you know. So he's, yeah. he's always been acutely aware of his status, it seems. So this guy goes, becomes parochial vicar in Mozambique, does that for a while, then eventually goes back to Portugal and effectively lives in retirement in Portugal with little acclaim or notice by anyone until this week when a Dutch magazine reported um, uh, allegations of effectively serial sexual abuse of teenage boys in, in, um, in East Timor, boys living in extraordinary poverty whom the bishop would, um, to whom the bishop would give money in exchange for their silence, in exchange for their continued effective availability to to him I, I, uh, something that i i want to make clear and i i, I don't I, we run a family friendly show and everything so i i want to do this um sensitively if i can but it's often the case when we are discussing instances and allegations of sexual abuse that and we've talked about this in it's a broad general term. terms in broad terms before that there's a whole gamut of behaviors and you know we can talk about things like you know inappropriate contact and touching and suggestive right. behavior and I want to be clear what the allegations all against Bishop Bellow all concern rape, rape. right that it, yeah. this is not a question of inappropriate touching or you know boundary violations or something like that that the, the allegations against him are rape yes that I that is important and I'm glad it, I'm I'm glad that you raised that as a point because it's an important one so um, the Holy See um announced sort of subsequently to this report and the, and the Dutch magazine talked with people, his, his alleged, some of his alleged victims talked with people in East Timor said they knew it and, and, and said that the Holy See had had him under a kind of a travel restriction, which the Holy See confirmed. So this came out on, I think Wednesday and then the Holy See confirmed yesterday. In, indeed, he has been under a travel restriction. Matteo Bruni, who is um, one of the Vatican spokesmen said, uh, told some reporters yesterday. Yeah. You know, the CDF became aware of these allegations in 2019 and, um, by 2020, had placed him under some restrictions that he couldn't be in contact with minor and minors, and some prohibition, uh, some prohibitions on public ministry, although those are unspecified, and some uh, prohibition on travel, although those two are unspecified. And and the magazine found some cases where he hadn't attended some ecclesiastical events. He hadn't gone, for example, to the massive thing, the consistory or the massive Thanksgiving for the new. Um, Cardinal Archbishop of Timor of, of Dili, which was the diocese that he led and, and had said, you have to ask the Holy See why. So there's some evidence that he had been under this restriction since 2020. Yeah. Now, I think that there was a thought maybe at the Holy See that they were uh, making things better by saying, yeah, since 2020, this guy has been under some restrictions. I think that they thought that they were making things better. Well, it but, made me flip my desk over. So how did you feel about it, J.D.? Well, it doesn't matter how I felt about it, but I do think that I do want to sort of just zoom out 
In 2018, the Cardinal McCarrick scandal emerges. In 2019, in 2018, McCarrick resigns from the College of Cardinals. In 2019, he is laicized. Pope Francis. Sorry, just to add more detail. 2018 was not just the McCarrick scandal, although it was definitely that. It was also the year that the entire Episcopal Conference of Chile resigned yes, that's right. for mm-hmm. grotesque cover-ups of sexual cover-ups abuse. Cover-ups of sexual abuse and misconduct. Uh-huh. Yeah, thank you. That is a very important point. Yeah, so 2019, you have these two things, or 2018, you have these two things, McCarrick and then this Chilean thing, which if you remember the Chilean fracas, it was really um, bad, right? Um, it was very it was bad. Very bad. Um, effectively, that there had been ac- accusations that some bishops were engaged in a cover-up that the Pope had initially not believed, and the Pope had actually sort of excoriated those who were making the accusations, and eventually it came came to the fore that this was seemed rather manifestly true, at least in the case of one bishop, and there were resignations and all kinds of things. It was not good. So what happened is 2018, we had all of these scandals. 2019, in February, Pope Francis convoked um, a global summit of the heads of the world's bishops' conferences to discuss the issue of clerical sexual abuse and specifically episcopal accountability. And right, what it seems wasn't like- so much about priestly abuse at that point. It was about episcopal accountability for handling allegations of abuse, and also episcopal accountability for episcopal allegations of abuse. Abuse of yes, uh, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. and um, barely a few weeks after that concluded, we were presented with Vosestis Lux Mundi which created all of these new mechanisms and procedures for investigating and handling allegations uh, related to sexual abuse or misconduct uh, in the episcopacy, including direct allegations and also allegations of negligence concerning other allegations and so on. And the entire thrust of the church's global life in 2019 was never again. Yeah, you guys remember you were there, right? Accountability. We, you know, we have learned, we will never, we must listen to the cries of the, of the innocent. Pope Francis said, listen to the, yeah, Pope Francis said, listen to the cries of those who have been harmed, listen to the victims. And there was, you guys remember, you were there, you remember all this. But the sobering thing about the Holy See's admission is effectively, what the Holy See did not say, what Matteo Bruni did not say is, the CDF learned about this in 2019 and initiated a, primla- a preliminary investigation in accord with the norms of the church's penal law. He could have cited any number of documents, which all sort of sketch out processes which are to be observed here. Um, that is not what Matteo Bruni said. He did not say, we began a penal process and we're in the middle of the penal process. We began a penal process and it has concluded. We began a penal process and found, out, in fact, that these allegations are not able to be proven and that put us in a difficult position. You know, he didn't say anything about a canonical penal process at all, in fact. And that's not like the Holy See because usually in recent months or recent years even, when a scandal arises, allegations arise about a bishop, if the Holy See had already begun some kind of a penal process, even the first stage of it, which is called a preliminary investigation, if they had already begun that, they're very quick to say, aha, don't worry, we have begun our penal process, our process is underway. With Zanchetta even, they said, we had a trial for Zanchetta. Now, they didn't tell us what the outcome of that trial was, but the Holy See has been very, very clear to tell us, we had a trial for Zanchetta. So, What's the problem here? You know, the Holy See is very keen when a scandal emerges to say if it has done something pertaining to the administration of justice. This is just her praxis. So the fact that she didn't say uh, on Thursday, you know, this has come out. And as it happens, the CDF found out about this in 2019 and we began a canonical process. Instead, no, this came out in 2019 and we issued some restrictions, which seems to suggest, again, Ed, I'm not saying that it's not possible that there's another narrative here, but which seems to suggest that indeed there has not been a canonical process. There has been the imposition of informal restrictions on travel and ministry, a la 
Theodore McCarrick, 2008. Yeah, this is exactly what we discovered happened with McCarrick. Then. Even if they're not informal restrictions, a, perhaps a precept that says, don't go here, don't do this, yeah. you know, which is a formal thing to which is attached a penalty. But that's not, that's forward, that's prospective, forward looking. It's not the same yes. as the administration of, of justice, which is sort of necessarily It's a safeguarding measure. Right. It's not exactly. a. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's. Uh, so I that mean, again, happened, right? That happened. I mean, it's worth noting that, uh, and in fact, it was you who I think first picked up on this was that the actual phraseology used by the Holy See Press Office was very clear to say that the CDF... The CDF found out in 2019. In 2019. Oh, okay, thanks. Now, there was a reporter, I think, who asked, I think I read this in New York Times, a reporter who asked, I can't remember if it, which journalist it was, but who asked a follow-up question, which we would have asked if they hadn't, well, could you tell us when the other dicasteries of the Holy See found out about this? And uh, tellingly, it seems, I mean, you know, you can't draw anything from an omission here, but Interestingly, the uh, CDF dec- or the Holy See has declined to respond to the question about when other departments of the Holy See became aware which, of allegations. Of course, is exactly what was reported in this Dutch magazine on Wednesday, which was that everyone in East Timor seemed to be of the opinion that the Vatican was well aware of the allegations against Bello at the time of his resignation and again, in two thousand two. A fifty-four-year-old guy with a Nobel Peace Prize in his country just got independence. He, he you would expect him. Well, you would expect him perhaps to be. Um, uh, entering into a new phase of pastoral ministry to which he wholly and completely dedicates himself to the needs of the people of East Timor and to the proclamation of the gospel. But at the very least, you would expect him to be taking a victory lap, a big victory lap, because he'd been advocating for the for the independence of East Timor, and, um, and effectively, he got it. And you would have thought, okay, if nothing else, this guy's going on the lecture circuit. Then he disappeared into Portugal, and you've got to think that the Holy See takes note, right? I mean, if nothing else, he had to contact whoever it was that the, was the apostolic nuncio responsible for East Timor at that point, and say, I need to resign, and I need to do it fast, and it has to do with my help. And you would have think that somebody would have said, uh, what, what? You should, aren't you going on a lecture circuit or anything? You know, and so it, it does not seem especially plausible to think that when this guy who was a rock star with a Nobel Peace Prize resigned from office, in 2002, the same year, by the way, as all of the, the spotlight scandals of the Boston Globe in the United States, it, it does not seem all that plausible to think that when this guy resigned from office in 2002, nobody at the Holy See said, um, what's up? You know? Yep. So best case scenario, the CDF found out about this in 2019. No one else had known about it beforehand. And rather than having a penal process, and they might have had a penal process, but seemingly more likely than a penal process, they just imposed these restrictions a la McCarrick. Worst case scenario, Ed, what's the worst case scenario here? Well, I suppose the worst case scenario is that in 2002, they became aware that a bishop with a Nobel Peace Prize and global status was accused of serially raping children over a period of decades and paying them hush money and said, right, okay, here's what we're going to do. You're going to resign for health reasons. You're going to disappear into Portugal for a few years. And then we're going to let you go be a missionary priest in Africa, where by your own admission, your primary pastoral work will be with children and young people. And that's going to be cool for a few years. And then when this catches up with us, we're just going to pretend like that never happened. Now, that would be the absolute worst case scenario. That would be the absolute a, a worst case scenario. A more likely scenario, if, you, if you're wondering, it, a more likely scenario, it seems to me, and Ed, tell me what you think about this, but it seems to me a more likely scenario is that 
In 2002, the bishop had some concern that some of these things were going to, some of these allegations were going to emerge, told the Holy See he had to resign. There was some understanding that this had something to do with allegations. The bishop was probably not especially specific. The whole, it's probably true that the Congregation for Bishops did not have sort of detailed allegations in a file on their desk, but knew that there was um, some fumus or some smoke around there and um, did not, did was incurious about asking. I mean, doesn't that seem to you like probably the most likely fact pattern? Sure. That would, that would be negligent and a grotesque violation sure, of the church's sure, own procedural saying, norms. Seem but like yes, the most likely there's nothing thing. in the history of the church in the last 60 years that would lead me to believe that they would have done anything other than ignore their own procedural norms in this instance. So yeah, I would call that the most likely. Yeah. So, you know, which again, which actually interestingly is reminiscent of certain elements of the McCarrick report itself, isn't it? Uh, yeah. More than reminiscent. This is McCarrick too, this time with Nobel prizes. This is... <laughs> It is a Honest very serious and sober thing, and um, and the reason I think why it is galling to us, the reason why we seem discontented about it, and I want to talk about after the break. I really want to talk about what to do with, about that as a Catholic if we if, if we have the time. But um, the reason why it's galling to us is because I think, like most people, well, I don't know. I think that I don't know. Look, I like you, Ed. I love the church. I'm a son in the, of the church. A firm every point of the creed and wish always to be closer to the heart of the church because I believe that that's the, the, the path of salvation. And at the same time, I can't figure out whether I'm surprised here. Like, I, I can't figure out whether post-McCarrick, I'm surprised that the emergence of this sort of post-McCarrick apparent, and again, I want to say apparent, apparent mishandling of this in seemingly Sorry, I, I have to pick happened. up that. There's Go no ahead. apparent to the mishandling here. Well, I mean, if there's a penal process no, at the CDF and they just didn't say it, right? grotesque mishandling here. It's a question of degree. Okay, it's a question so best, of how what's the bad? absolute best case scenario? The absolute, the absolute best, case, best scenario case scenario is that, is that it is exactly what the Vatican's timeline says. Well, no, the best says, case scenario is the Vatican overspoke, and there is a process going on at the CDF, and they didn't say that, right? So, I mean, that's in the realm of, I just want to say, in the realm of possibility, that exists, right? That, that could be. No, let me, let me tell you for why I don't believe that is a possibility. <laughs> not why you don't think it's likely, but why you don't think it's possible. Yes. Okay. Well, not why I don't think it's possible. Why I don't think that is the case. Oh, sure. Yeah, I don't think because it's Because the Dutch magazine, and I keep saying the Dutch magazine, I can visualize the name of the thing, but I'm I not know, going like, to attempt to pronounce it. It's Der Stroopwafel Gazetten or something. I don't know. <laughs> but... Um, the Dutch magazine, which did a sterling job on this, this is like a three and a half thousand word feature length article. I mean, this is good journalism that they've done here. They talked to dozens of people in East Timor, including alleged victims of the bishop, who dozens, JD, of people who said, no, this was well known in, in the area, among the among Catholics in the area. We knew this was happening. It was, you know, all of that. If If you're talking to dozens of people who are victims or material witnesses, to the allegations against the bishop, and there was a canonical process going on related to the bishop that would have come out in their interviews. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think, again, I think the Holy See, is it possible that Matteo Bruni doesn't know the language of the CDF and how to talk about it? Uh, this yes, isn't about is totally what Bruni possible. said or didn't but say. This is about right. if there was a penal process going on, even I at the stage of a preliminary yeah. investigation, it would have filtered through to the people who are making these complaints in the first place. And the fact that the um, and, and, it, and the fact that the Dutch magazine had the travel restriction. Now, I don't expect the authors of the Dutch magazine to understand what a preliminary investigation is or an administrative penal process or whatever, except, but the fact that they had, they knew there was a travel restriction, but didn't have 
says that they're well sourced, right? But mm-hmm. didn't have that there's a process going on. Again, I think makes the prospect of a process very unlikely. Yeah. But it is possible that a process is going on. But in that best case scenario pr- circumstance in which even which a process is going on, you still have a process is going on. It's a secret process. The bishop has not been removed, you know, has not has been cautioned in various ways, but has not sort of been removed from ministry and no parent in his vicinity has been warned about the pr- the the plausible danger of him serving as a confessor or spiritual director for their children. And that's the part that irks me the most is that whatever has happened, no parent in Portugal where this guy is living has any reason to think until this week that this guy is a Nobel Peace Prize winning advocate for good things who, thanks be to God, is in their town and can be, you know, close with their family. No one has any reason to think anything other than that, even when at least since 2019, the Holy See knows that that's not the whole story. And that's the part that just, I I can't figure out whether I should be surprised or not. I mean, I'm, but I can't figure out if I should be surprised. Hmm. I think the best case scenario, excluding what I would consider to be implausible possibilities, <laughs> is that it's 2019. We've had the Chilean crisis. We've had the McCarrick scandal. We've had a global summit on Episcopal accountability in the abuse crisis, and we've had Vosestes Lux Mundi. And again, this is the best case scenario. The accusations against Bishop Bello drop at the CDF and they go, hmm, well, we're going to ignore everything that's just happened in the last two years. And everything we've just said is never going to happen again. And we will never do again. And all the policies we brought in that said, this is the way we're going to handle these things from now on. They took all of that and threw it out the window and said, let's rerun the McCarrick playbook because that worked really, really well. And everything the church has done from the moment of the McCarrick scandal, the Pennsylvania grand jury report, the Chilean crisis, the global summit, all of that actually total waste of effort, total waste of everyone's time. That's the, that's to my mind, the best interpretation of what happened. The worst interpretation is their Amsterdam, whatever Amsterdam is reporting, got it spot on. And everyone in the Vatican was aware of this, or at least the congregation for bishops was aware of this. The secretary of state was aware of this in 2002 at the time of his resignation. And they did, as they reported, consider him too big to fail. And they basically said, well, you're going to have to leave East Timor and you can never go back. And that doesn't and, seem implausible, right? I mean, whether, it's, no, whether it is this situation. No, it doesn't seem implausible right, to me at all. That's so, the worst case scenario, but it's not at all an implausible one. So am I surprised? No. Do you ever have a feeling? I, uh, I don't know. Uh, I, should, I should take a minute and, and think about this before I start shooting my mouth off because I'm, I'm tired and I, I want to make sure I don't just tear off without a filter here. I, I find it very, very difficult not to be utterly enraged. But at the same time, there's my emotional reaction to situations like this is almost a, a sort of defeated sense of inevitability that, of course, this was going to happen again. Why wouldn't this happen all over again? Why would I think that, you know, Vos Estes or this Global Abuse Summit or the McCarrick Report meant something? I mean, I, I never actually gave all that much um, credit to the McCarrick report, but that's a separate question. Um, 
you know, why, why would I possibly think that lessons had actually been learned when everyone in the Vatican insisted we have learned lessons? You know, it's, it, we, this is what we were talking about again the other week, you know, we were talking about Bishop Bodhi in Germany, you know, and it's, you know, why, why would I expect any different? It's just, it, it's the sense of, I mean, and I'm a Cubs fan, so I'm, it's, it's that sense of almost, you know, emotional release of, of course, the worst has happened again. You know, what else did I expect? That's that. That's my knee-jerk reaction to all this. I mean, you. I don't know. I understand that you're trying to decide whether you're surprised or not, but I wish I could be surprised. I wish I still had it in me to be shocked by this. But it, it's not that. It's a dull ache at this point. There's there's no acute sense of response in me left. I mean, we've been doing this for so long. We have been doing this for a long time, right? And so I do. I do think. I I definitely hear you. I do think. Um. It is true that um, when I do think it is true that when McCarrick stuff was happening and we were talking about that, and when Vosestis was promulgated and we were talking about that, and the new book six, the Code of Kin Law, and these kinds of things. I mean, I do think that one of the things that we have said rather consistently is that um, you know cultural change, which is a recognition of why things like this are a problem for some people can happen right away. Some people, I think 2018 happened and like, bam, they have a very different viewpoint on this stuff. Um, other people, I do think it takes the processes themselves. And I do, I, I do think that the um, impact of the 2002 Dallas charter and essential norms in the United States, although not perfect, right. And, and actually procedurally having some real issues with regard to due process for priests and things like that. Um, I do think that they have, and there's data, it's not just JD thinks, but there's a lot of data that says that, okay, those things have made ecclesiastical environments in the United States safer for children. We have developed, 20 years later, we have developed habits and elements of our culture and taboos that have made the church a safer environment for, for children and a safer environment for children than many many sort of public environments which have not learned any of those lessons. That is true. And so I do think, okay, I can look at from 2002 to 2022 by data, by anecdote, by experience, by intuition, by culture, by lots of measures and say this thing, although imperfect, has done good and begun working, right? And and so I do think if I want to say, I, I do think, you know, that the new book six, that the scandals of 2018 the things which bishops said at that point, and especially the awareness among so many people about new things regarding sexual abuse in the life of the church, the prospect of abuse of power, the importance of transparent and um, and public justice. I do think that those things, as long as they continue to be raised, will have cultural impact. And that 20 years from now, I'd like to think we'll be able to say, yeah, we look back at 2022 and we didn't yet have anything that really looked like a commitment to sort of procedural justice on these things, but we can see that it developed over time. I, I do think that that is possible because we have seen it in certain ways with the Dallas Charter, even while we continue to say that that's imperfect. But this is a reminder, at, if nothing else, of the slog that that will be and the degree to which many people in positions of leadership and authority seem not to have realized the importance of sort of public mechanisms of accountability and justice uh, amid very severe allegations, especially for bishops, and I do think it's also a reminder that bishops, and we have some listening to the show, which is why I have to say this, I do think it's also a reminder that 
bishops have to be among those who are saying, for the good of the people who are impacted by hearing about these things, have to be among those who are saying the Holy See has to do better. Privately, finding ways to say that to the Holy Father and to the Congregation for Bishops and to the Apostolic Nuncio. But I think publicly, Catholics, practicing Catholics, people who listen to this show, really do need to know that bishops know that this kind of thing is deeply dispiriting and demoralizing and and a genuine impediment to the um, effort of well-intentioned, real people, lay and clerical, who are trying to live the Christian life in the context of the Church. No, that is true. And to be clear, you've raised the thing, but we've come a long way in this country since 2002. On, on, the, on the one thing, yeah. I, I, and I, I want to say I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. And I think part of the reason why there's a gigantic disconnect between what you would expect out of most diocesan chanceries these days and what I can't expect better to come out of different Roman dicasteries these days is there has been in the church in this country, for example, a very, very painful proximate lived experience of the consequences and the fallout of the abuse scandals of 2002, that there has been no physical or emotional distance possible between the church and the effects on the faithful. And I'm sorry, Rome is a long way away. The Vatican is physically practically, intellectually, and emotionally on another planet from the reality of how cases like this hit ordinary Catholics. And I find it very dispiriting. But I take your point that it's a long, it's a long way to change a culture. And, you know, as you were talking, the thing that struck me was, you said, well, you know, yeah, but here we are, you know, four years after McCarrick and we're still doing this and how can this possibly, you know, why would I expect any difference? Actually, why would I expect any different? But that's not a reason to be completely cynical about the, the eventual slow grinding pace of change because sure. Okay. So we had spotlight in what year did spotlight start? 2002. 2002. And then when was the Dallas charter? Also 2002, but, but there was the big, like the approval of the Lord's came back. It wasn't like 2004, 2006. My, don't know when the audit. You're wondering when the audit started and the other elements, those other elements. I, no, I I'm think wondering when McCarrick gave his big speech at the U.S. at the USCCB. Yeah, the the reporting started and then the conference that became the predominant. It was like 2018, right? The reporting started. The reporting was shocking, and the conference sort of locked itself in. The difference between 2002 and 2018 is that. Um, do you remember that in 2018 the bishops had some documents that they were going to vote on? Yes. And then the Holy See told them they couldn't. Yes. It, the I, difference I is in 2002, right. they had some documents they were going to vote on and, the, and no one intervened to tell them they couldn't. So they, 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 right. But I feel like the, there was some back and forth for two years with Rome about fine tuning them and bringing them in. I don't know it. when they got the recognition. I, I don't know when they got the recognition. Anyway, they, my they were point in 2002, is, but I don't know when they got the recognition. The point I was building towards is, oh, the essential norms was the only part that had to get the recognition, but I don't know when it did. Okay. I'm pretty sure it was 2004, but that's not the point. The point is, McCarrick was still giving speeches in 2004, right, 2006 yeah. at USCCB meetings. He was still be widely considered to be like, you want to talk to, you know, the, the thinking, feeling bishop that is going to be the church's face of credible contrition and reform in this country. You know, you get to call Uncle Ted. He's, you know, he's the guy. He's going to be out front. And, you know, we got that. So, you know, sure, we're, we've, we've, we're four years away from 2018 and we're still here. And in a sense, you know, that's bad and disappointing and 
uh, as I said, I, I struggle to feel shock or surprise, but it shouldn't make me cynical about the process of reform because, you know, <laughs> knowing if we knew what we knew about McCarrick then that we do now, we would have been just as horrified and cynical and everything else in the years following 2002 when real progress was being made. And we are seeing the fruits of that progress. We are seeing the fruits of, um, you know, real efforts to rebuild, uh, not just sort of processes and procedures, but, but trust. And we've seen a generation of bishops come through, I think, that speak a different language, that think a different way, that have a different pastoral relationship with their own flock. And it's a pastoral relationship that has been largely formed in the wake of the 2002 scandals and crises. And maybe that's, you know, just part and parcel of what this has to be is there has to be the same generational turnover and we just aren't there yet. Um, yeah. That's entirely possible. I, I, I can think of U.S. bishops who, I, I think you're right in the sense that I'm, I'm sort of going in my mind through how would various U.S. bishops that I know respond to this. And I can think of U.S. bishops who will be outraged at this and U.S. bishops who will see that what's happened is wrong but perhaps have a less visceral reaction. And it is, you know, it, it's two things. One, it's sort of generational. The other is it's having a hands-on set of experiences with the consequences of um, sexual abuse and misconduct. I think I was talking about this last week on the show, but, you know, my wife sort of really struck me when she said, well, don't bishops know the names and faces of, of victims? And um, and the more that that's true, uh, rather than knowing victims as as um, a, a series of John or Jane Doe's in, in, in a lawsuit only, the more that that's true, the more that that changes everything. And I think younger uh, younger bishops certainly have that experience. And then people who will become bishops in the decades to come, who especially were young priests in, in, in 2018 and experienced that, you know, all the more will we'll, 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 we'll think about that. And, and there are really, you know, serious things to think about. Col- the cultural changes, understanding the consequences of having a different approaches to some of this stuff, um, you know, it would have been, Gosh, in 2004, when in 2002, when this guy resigned, Bishop Bellow resigned, he just won the Nobel Peace Prize, and the church would have had to grapple with the, you know, humiliation of him, probably a perception of humiliation for his people, probably a perception that that would sort of undermine the efforts of his people. And I'm not saying that doing the right thing isn't clear and obvious. I'm just saying that it comes with costs, and you have to have people who have seen the hardship enough to be willing to bear the costs. Yeah. All right, we have to take a we have to take a break for a word from our sponsor. JD, this episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you once again by our friends at Harmel Academy of the Trades, the place where young men can go to be in a community of prayer, faith formation, and formation for adult life learning desirable skilled trades through either one year gap year courses or two year apprenticeship track courses. And I'm very grateful to them for continuing to sponsor the show. But I have to say, the more I learn about them, the more I like what they do. I've always been a fan of the sort of theory of this when I first heard about them. Um, It is, I think, a really great program. I think it is a really great looking way for young men, particularly at the sort of school lever age of 18, 19, 20, to take time and to think about their lives in a way that is and where they want to go with it next as a sort of period of discernment even. And part of uh, living discernment actively is to is to keep yourself busy and in a kind of formation. And, and they seem to, from everything I, I can find about them, offer, you know, a, a real program of, of living formation across the gamut. And I, I just think it's really cool. Yeah. And, um, you know, Harmel Academy, which, as you said, is a post-secondary Catholic, Catholic skilled trade school for men. 
uh, aims um, to do um, skilled trades training with uh, hands-on lab and project-based learning and paid apprenticeship, but also the spiritual formation that comes through living in a community, that comes in having the habit of the daily office and the sacraments, um, and then the intellectual formation that comes in a kind of integrated humanities curriculum, which is not just catechesis, but uh, a kind of formation for intellectual wonder, theology, philosophy, literature, history, film, um, all designed specifically, though, not sort of just in the abstract, but designed specifically for the vocation of um, of working tradesmen, the kind of people who are being tra- trained at Harmel Academy. So Harmel Academy uh, for the trade, super interesting project. If you um, or someone you know are sort of trying to figure out, well, what comes next, see if it might be the right thing for you at harmelacademy.org. Ed, like you, I'm very grateful that Harmel has been our sponsor, uh, has been sponsoring us. And uh, like you, I think it's a very cool thing. Check it out at harmelacademy.org and see if it might be right for you or someone in your family. All right, Ed. We're back. Um <laughs> Uh, I, can I just before we do whatever it is we're going to do next? I just want to say, I and we this is a thing that we have talked about in different contexts on the show a lot over the years, and it is the, the church is a particular kind of institution. It is both human and divine, and this is a you know when we're talking about stuff like this, this is a moment where I am very acutely aware of the human aspect of the church's nature, and it makes me humanly angry. Very, humanly, sorry, I was waiting for my microphone. Angry, there. Humanly angry. I was very for my angry, there. but. You know, I. That is not a reason to doubt the divine aspect of the church's nature. That you know, I, I, and this is I mean, like you, you asked me like when we started the show, you're like, have you been, you know, have you been working on yourself a little bit, you know, crap <laughs> like that. But I mean, the truth is like, yeah, I have this week. I've been praying more than normal. I have been trying to do more things along that line than normal, trying to get to mass more often, confession too, the other day, midweek, all of that stuff. And and why is it? Because when I am utterly scandalized and re- enraged by situations of what I perceive to be gross negligence and indifference, of a, of a callous St. Augustine on the shepherd's kind. The only place I can turn where I find any kind of answer or any kind of consolation is, is in the divine nature of the church is in the Eucharist is in the, the sacraments is in the word of God that, that, you know, that this is I, for me, I, I understand how some people can perceive the church and, and feel that their, their relationship spiritually to God through the church is is hurt, is damaged, is wounded by by things like this, and I, I get that, I get that reaction. But I guess what I'm saying is like you know, for me, it, it it's not that it works the other way. This isn't you know, give me more faith when people do stuff like this, but it does remind me that you know you can't be in this for the humanity of the church. Uh, you know, if you're looking, if you're if you're in the church, if I'm in the church looking for hope of salvation through the charisma and good judgment of the individuals running here, then, you know, we're all screwed. And, you know, what, what makes the church important? What makes the church endure is that it's divine, that God is in his church and that's where I find him. And so, yeah, I just wanted to like, in case, like, I don't want just when we talk about this stuff, I always worry that people are going to walk away just feeling like, well, embrace the darkness. JD and Ed are really sad. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, I just, think, it's sad. I don't care. I am no. sad and I am angry and I don't mind if people walk away with that feeling. Well, they don't want to feel like walk away with a nihilistic impression of the church, which that, that would be a tragedy. Yeah. And that actually, would be a disservice. I, I, I'm glad you say that because actually that, 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 that reality is the thing which makes the church sort of worth. That's the reason why I am invested in these things. I am, as you know, Ed, extremely cynical about the prospect of secular politics achieving good. I'm glad when it does. I'm very glad when um, when, uh, when a secular political process achieves a, a, a good end. I'm glad, you know, I'm glad for that. But I'm extremely cynical about the prospect of secular politics achieving achieving good. I'm, I'm cynical about that. I'm, I'm cynical, as I think are many people of our sort of generation experience, about cynical about many sort of institutions. And, you know, I understand the sort of, pro, the sort of a, trend towards institutional disaffiliation that characterizes much of our generation and many of its sort of affiliations. It, it makes sense to me. Um, I think that it is worth talking about this stuff and it is worth continuing to talk about this stuff precisely because the church is our mother and the mediator of sacramental grace in the world. It's the reason why it's reform matters. If, if, if the church wasn't that, it'd be like, well, yeah, okay, there's another sort of institution that I'm extremely cynical about and maybe does some good sometimes and maybe it doesn't. But it, the church sort of does some visible good sometimes um, is almost accidental to the real thing which it's doing, which is like affecting the good which comes about through the sac- holy sacrifice of the Eucharist at the altar and affecting the good which comes about in sacramental absolution and affecting the good which comes about in guarding and protecting and interpreting the deposit of faith which the Lord gave, uh, you know, which the Lord gave the church um, and which contains for us like the answer to every question which plagues the human heart. Those are the reasons why the holiness of the members of the church and the integrity of her processes and everything I think is worth caring about you know otherwise it would just be like well here's another thing and the limits of human capacity are that we always tend to choose the wicked thing and happy day but i think that it's possible for the church to do justice because i think that it's true that the eucharist and well our baptism and our confirmation and the eucharist and our and sacramental confession and the teachings of the church and the liturgical worship of the church dispose us to justice and and make po- are the only things which ultimately make possible justice or truth or uh, you know become the pathway to real freedom like the church is the place by which we have any hope the only place by which we have any hope of overcoming those things um which plague all of us which are sin and those things which are which plague us structurally which are sin and uh, and so it's hard, man, because it's hard to sort of like, I want to be a son of the church and uh, I want to talk about the church in a way that helps other people be a son of the church. But I also want, because of what's true about the church theologically, I want to be a mechanism of public accountability for the church. And I think none of us really know how to talk about all those things which feel in tension with each other. I I see serious administrative problems in the life of the church in Rome. And I also know that the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth. And I wish to be a son of the church and express dispositional filial piety to the Roman pontiff, and at the same time um, call for this kind of public accountability. I see the same kind of set of theological questions and ambiguities and challenges in this papacy that anybody who's paying attention to it, whatever they think about those things, sees. Some people think they're laudatory, some people don't. But I see them, and at the same time, I sincerely believe in 
the inerrancy of the church and and uh, and what that does mean and um I'm not Pollyannish about sort of it being this sort of limitless protection which can solve anyone from any problems, but I sincerely believe in the inerrancy of the church and the charisms that the Holy Spirit gives to the church and to the papacy, um, and at the same time see these problems. And so I, I just want to say, I guess more than anything, like if you listen to us and read us and you feel at times like the, all of those things are in tension with each other, it's because they are. The human and divine identity of the church are in tension because of the tension between grace and manifest human sin. And, and I don't, I'm not trying to excuse it. I'm just trying to say, indeed they are in tension. And, um, it's, it's living in that tension in truth that I think, at least I think is the sort of direction of the Christian life. Yeah. No, I would agree with that. All right. Well, what do you want to do next? Take a nap. Oh, (laughs) sorry. Was that too honest? No, I just thought we were going to play a game or something. Oh, I do you have a game? No, I specifically asked you to write a game. No, you did not. I did. I said, here's a game theme, If I, I, I would be glad if you would write a game. I thought you were doing it. I sincerely did. No, it would be weird if I did it. Cause I, I thought it was weird, but I also thought, well, it's JD's. It's his birthday. And he can- 1028. I said, uh, I was thinking of making a big thing out of turning 40 on the show. Want to make a 40 game. You said, for sure. I okay, so you didn't know, but you didn't have a pronoun there. You said want to make a forty game. Yeah, like I uh, thought also, you. Also, I was thinking do... of making a big thing of turning forty next Thursday. Want to make a forty game? I thought you meant I want to make a forty. Oh game. no, no, sorry, I meant you. Okay, yeah, well no, that's totally that fine. That was a total miscommunication. We've total epically failed. Total miscommunication. We have failed. Here's the deal. Uh, you know, um, <laughs> next week I'll turn forty. That feels you like will turn sort of 40 milestone. Next. I mean, it doesn't feel like a milestone to me. I'm not sort of like a pirate looks at forty or whatever that stupid Jimmy Buffett book is, but. My point is, I'd love like, I'd love to have forty subscriptions from the subscribe from the listeners to the Pillar Podcast. That's all I have to say here, and everything else was going to be window dressing to the fact that, um, although so many of you, are, that although really so make. many of you are subscribers and so extremely generous with that, and times are tough. Basically, the reason Ed and I shill for subscribers so often, I mean, I would just put it, the reason Ed and I shill for subscribers so often is because at this point we are shilling for subscribers to help us pay other people the people who work for us as freelancers or as staffers, and we think that they do good work and we want to be able to pay them because we want to be able to grow this thing. So it's not like we're not shilling for subscribers for us. We're shilling for subscribers, so to speak, for the people, the really talented people with whom we work. So we'd be grateful. And, uh, you know, I just use any opportunity. If you wonder, why are they always talking about that? The reason we're always talking about that is because we think that this is a great place to work and we think that the pillar is doing good journalism and important journalism in the life of the church. And we don't only mean us, we mean all the people with whom we work and we want to make that possible for them. And you are the people upon whom we depend. And so we are asking for your help. I'll go on better. I, I will make a really great game for your birthday. next week. (laughs) It will be, I've I've had an idea while you're talking, but it won't be my birthday. Well, your birthday is this coming. I think my birthday is next week. I don't know what day of the week. So we'll just do it then. Yeah, but it yeah. will be the week of your birthday. And that yeah, is, yeah. that is, I would argue, more correct. I, I, okay. Preemptive celebrations are weird. I totally agree. Okay, then we're not going to do that. This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Harmel Academy of the Trades, where they have lots of great things happening, but never have preemptive celebrations for your birthday, because that's a little bit weird. If, to find out if Harmel Academy of the Trades is great for you, go to harmelacademy.org. And Ed, um, why don't you take us out? Uh, this episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Pillar Media 
The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Pillar Media and Ed NGD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, joined by my podcasting partner, as ever, Ed, who just ran a game on me. He knew all of the words to that. We will be back next week. 